Before I begin, I want to thank uh, Jonathan Gilmore and Italian Ministries for the privilege of being here with you, and I want to thank you for the very warm and affectionate greeting and welcome that we've had over these days. It's been a really sweet privilege to be with you. And knowing a little more now about your situation here and in the Balkans will make our prayers for you more real, more intense. On the first day, I argued that God created the world and does everything that He does in order to glorify His name. The ultimate reason Christ exists and came into the world is so that there would be a magnifying of God's grace in Christ, and that grace reaches its highest, most beautiful demonstration in the cross and the resurrection where the Son of God dies for His enemies. And then yesterday, I argued that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I based that on Philippians 1.20 and 1.21, where Paul says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I might not at all be ashamed, but that now, as always, Christ might be magnified in my death, for to me to die is gain. So, if you are so satisfied in Christ that when you lose everything this life gives you, and you die, and you have only Christ, and you call it gain, Christ is magnified in that satisfaction. So, the point was not when I glorify God, I am happy, but rather, when I am happy in God, above all things, God is glorified. And then I gave nine arguments for the implication of that, namely, if that's true, if that's true, you should pursue your joy in God with all your might all the time. And I left out one or two arguments because that was going to be today's message. So that's where we are. Today's message is, if you abandon your quest to be happy in God, fully 
happy in God forever, if you abandon that pursuit, you cannot love people. So that was the argument I left out yesterday. Loving people on the horizontal level depends on you pursuing your joy in God fully and forever. That's today's message. Now, there's an assumption behind that statement. And the assumption is that love means something very specific in the Bible. And I'll tell you what that is, and then I'll try to show it from Scripture in the rest of our time together. Loving people means seeking to expand your joy in God by including them in it. No matter the cost, even if you must die to make that happen. So I'll say it again. Loving people, being loving to people, loving people means seeking to expand your joy in God, expand, enlarge your joy in God so that they are included in it no matter what it costs you, including your life. That's love. If you try to do good things for people, feed them, educate them, heal their diseases, and you have no intention in all of that, that they would be included in your full and everlasting joy in God, you don't love them. I don't care how much worldly good you do for people, if your heart is not that they would be included in your joy, in God, forever, you don't love them. The world, of course, will say that you love them, but not God. God won't say that you love them. If you don't care about drawing other people into your everlasting and full joy in God, you don't love people, which implies then that if you stop pursuing your fullest and forever joy, if you stop pursuing your expanded joy, you can't love people. So that's today's message. And now the question is, is that what the Bible teaches? My opinion does not matter about this. Is that what the Bible teaches about love? 
everlasting, all-satisfying joy in God is the greatest gift you can give to anyone. If you don't have it, you can't give it. And therefore, you must pursue it every day, full and forever joy, so that you have something to include others in. And everlasting, all-satisfying joy in God is precisely what sustains you in the suffering required to serve other people. If you give your life to love other people, you will suffer, and some of you will die. I watched the video on ministering to refugees. What an amazing opportunity. This is, a, this is a golden moment for all the prosperous nations of the world, including my own. A golden moment to love. And it will be costly. Be costly. So let's turn to the Bible now. And I have five or six arguments from the Bible that if you, if you don't pursue your joy fully and forever in God, you can't love people. That's my thesis. That's my point. And now we need to see if this is biblical. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's using the Macedonians, <laughs> a familiar land, some of you, he's using the Macedonians as a model for love. Let's read this. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's telling the Corinthians, I want to tell you something about the Macedonian believers. The grace of God came to them, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. For they gave, Paul is taking up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. He's gathering an offering, a collection of money for the poor in Jerusalem. We know that from other passages. And he says, those Macedonians, verse 3, they gave according to their means 
as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. No, I didn't twist their arm and make them do it. They did it because they wanted to do it, begging us, verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now look at verse 8. I just want to include verse 8 because verse 8 puts a name on this, and the name is love. I say this, this is verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, namely the Macedonians, that your love, love also, just like theirs, your love also is genuine. Okay, so now we have a picture of love, right? You're with me? Verse 8 calls the behavior of the Macedonians love. And I want to know, what is love? I don't care what the world says love is. Now, I don't care what you say love is. I care infinitely what the inspired apostle describes as love, because I want to do that. I want to love people. And I want to love people the way God tells me to love people, not the way they want to be loved. Okay? So what is love? Let's read verses 1 and 2 and watch it happen. Let's just watch love happen. I want you to know, brothers, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, love starts with the outpouring of God's grace. The gospel came to the Macedonians. They believed the gospel. They were saved. Their sins were forgiven. Heaven was open to them. Their guilt was taken away. They were made right with God. They enjoyed peace of conscience. They were thrilled with the grace of God. Let's keep reading. The grace of God was shown to the Macedonians, and here's the evidence of the grace. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, now mark that, the grace of God came down and affliction or suffering came up. This is not exactly prosperity preaching. The grace of God comes, and with it comes affliction, suffering. That's what it says. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy in the affliction, in the suffering, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Grace came to the Macedonians, suffering increased, poverty did not go away. So they are in suffering and they are poor. 
and they are happy beyond measure. Isn't that what abundance of joy means? Their joy is exploding in affliction, in poverty. Their joy is exploding, which means that their joy is not in the removal of suffering. Their joy is not in the removal of poverty. Their joy is in God. And what happens? What happens next? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That is love. So how would you define love now on the basis of those two verses? Because verse 8 says that's love. How would you do it? Here's my definition of love based on those two verses. You tell me in your head, is that a good definition? Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Therefore, if you don't pursue that joy, you cannot love people. Argument number one, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Argument number two, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Paul is still talking about giving to the Corinthians. He's trying to motivate them to be sacrificially generous people, generous with their money, generous with their time, generous with everything they are. Be a giving, giving, giving people, not a getting, getting, getting people. Be a giving people. Let your life flow to other people. That's what he's trying to create. And he's doing it by pointing to the Macedonians as a great example of the grace of God creating that kind of life and love. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 9, he says this, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly, I don't want to, but I have to, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. Isn't that simply a restatement of chapter 8, verse 2? 
their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of liberality, a wealth of generosity. And here he says, when giving is cheerful in God, God smiles and loves that moment in your life. He loves it when you do that. So, if you are indifferent if you don't care about pursuing that kind of cheerfulness in giving, you are indifferent to pleasing God. God does not like merely dutiful giving. He likes cheerful giving. And now we've seen from chapter 8, verse 2, where that cheerfulness resides, where it comes from. It comes from grace in God, and it exists alongside suffering, and it exists alongside poverty, because the joy or the cheerfulness is in God. What if you don't feel cheerful or happy in God when there's an opportunity to give? So on an afternoon, you're invited to go minister to some refugees, and you're tired, and you don't feel overflowing. Or it's in a church service, and they're taking up an offering. And you know that you should give and you don't want to give because you're saving up for an iPad. Should you give anyway? One person answers, of course you should. It's a duty. You give. It doesn't matter how you feel. You just give. You just go minister and you just give because it doesn't matter how you feel. That's, that's one kind of theology. Everything I've said in these three days says that's wrong. Second response is, no, you shouldn't give because it's inauthentic and hypocritical to give if you don't have any cheerfulness in your giving, if you don't have any desire to give, if you don't have any joy that's overflowing in generosity. You shouldn't give because then you would be a hypocrite. That's not my position. You might think it is. It's not. Here's the third alternative. So the opportunity exists to go minister to the refugees or in 10 seconds the, the basket that you're going to put your money in or not in the, in the worship service is coming to you. Will you give or won't you give? You've got 10 seconds to decide. What do you do? And here's what I think you should do. Number one, you should repent that your joy is so small or even non-existent. You should say, I'm sorry, Lord, that I want the iPad more than I want the spread of your gospel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry that I want my comfort this afternoon more than I want to give to the refugee need. I'm sorry. That's number one. I'm sorry. Number two, you should pray and ask that God would restore your joy. This is the way the psalmist prayed. Restore to me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation so that I love to give money and I love to give my life. Please, Father, come. If you don't come, I'm in big trouble because I'm not delighting in you right now, and I'm sorry. So you pray. Third, you trust a particular promise. This is very big. If I ever come back to Italy, we should do three messages on this. You trust a particular promise like... The, the verse in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 that comes right after 9, 7 that tells us to be a joyful giver. What's the next verse? The next verse says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound, overflow, in every good work. So you, you remind yourself of that promise as the offering basket is coming down the row. And you believe it. You believe it. God is able to give me what I need so that my heart will be right here. He's able to restore my joy. I'm asking Him and He's able. He's promised that grace would be there for the right motivation to do every act He wants me to do. I trust you. And then fourth, you put your money in the basket. Do you see the difference between my position and position number one where it says, just give, just give. It doesn't matter how you feel. Life is duty. Just give. A lot of pastors preach that way. That's awful. That's terrible. Just give. God says give. God is in charge. You give. That's not Christianity. Every religion functions that way. I'm, I'm calling you when you don't feel overflowing in generosity with your life or your money, I'm saying there's a, there's a spiritual dynamic for how to approach God at that moment in your brokenness. I'm so sorry that my joy is so small. Please, I need your help. Come, restore to me the joy of my my salvation, my relationship with you. Please, God, open my eyes. Help me be the kind of person I need to be in this moment of giving. You've given me such precious promises, promises that every need will be met and that I'll have the grace for every good deed. So, Father, as I put this money in the offering plate, do the miracle of joy. That's very different very different than just do it. <laughs> just, just do it. That's not Christianity. Argument number three. Second, I mean Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews 
book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This is especially for pastors, church leaders, and for those who want to help them be fruitful and loving in ministry. Verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account to God, those who will have to give an account. Here it comes. Listen carefully. Let them do this with joy. Let them do this with joy. Why? Why should you be so eager that your pastor serves you with joy? That's what it says. Why? And the answer is in the next phrase. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning because that would be of no advantage to you. (laughs) That's amazing. I love the Bible. That's just amazing. Pastor, do you see that? Do you see what that's saying? People, pray and do whatever you can do so that your pastor does his work with joy, watches over your souls with joy, not with groaning. Oh, these people, they're so hard to serve. Groan, 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 groan. Wah, 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 wah. Why don't you want your pastor to be groaning in the ministry, faithfully doing his duty and groaning the whole while? Why? Why? Because that would be of no advantage to you. Therefore, if a pastor wants to be of advantage, wants to benefit his people, he cannot be indifferent to his joy in God in the ministry. You get that? Let me say it again. Therefore, because of that verse, any pastor who says, I don't need to be joyful in the ministry, He is saying, I don't need to love my people. Because if your life is of no advantage to the people, no benefit to the people, you don't love them. And this text says, you will be of no advantage to your people if you are not joyful in the ministry. I wish I could get in your head right now. I'm looking at you, and I cannot tell if you understand what I'm saying. I'm just looking at you, wondering, do they get this? Do you get this? Are you seeing what's here? It's just amazing what's here. This is here. But I'm just going to trust God through those translators back there. 
That's argument number three. Pastors, if they stop pursuing their joy in God, in the ministry, they stop loving their people. Because that verse says, you will be of no advantage to your people if you do your ministry with groaning. You know what groaning pastors creates? It creates sick churches. They're all over America, probably some in Italy. Sick, sick churches. It's just, it's just the atmosphere is toxic. Why? Because the pastor is not overflowing with joy in God, and therefore he's constantly communicating, God is not worth it. God is not satisfying. God doesn't give me what I need, and you people are hard. That's a toxic situation. That's what this verse says. Here's the Apostle Peter's way of saying it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. All you pastors know this verse, but listen to it now in the light of Hebrews 13, 17. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, isn't that the same as 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful pastor, cheerful giver in the pulpit, giving his life to his people, wants him to be cheerful. That's what it says. Do it eagerly. Do it willingly. Don't do it for money. For God's sake, don't do it for money. The world will leave Christianity in a minute if they see pastors as money getters, which is why I hate rich prosperity preaching. Get on your jet, fly to Nigeria, gather 50,000 people, tell them they'll prosper if they believe in Jesus, get on your jet and go back to America. I hate that exported prosperity preaching because this text says, don't do it for money. Don't minister for money. Don't live for money. Money is a great ministry killer, either because you've got a lot of it or you want a lot of it. It's a killer. What's the alternative to being greedy? Be happy in Jesus, no matter what. Affliction, poverty, overflowing joy. Those people aren't going to be greedy. Oh, pastors, my prayer for you. I know the struggles. I was there for 33 years, crying my eyes out many times. I remember getting up late one night, 
Noel may not even know this, probably does. And I went downstairs so she wouldn't hear me. And I just got down on the living room floor and I, I, I banged my head against the carpet, just pleading with God. I was so discouraged. We have an apartment downstairs where people live. I have my pajamas on, and the man from the apartment quietly knocks on the door at 2 o'clock in the morning. This was Mike Rowe, Noel. And he opens the door, and he says, John, what's wrong? It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to kill myself. (laughs) You just need to know I'm not speaking out of a life of ease in the ministry. I know. I know the tears. We'll come back to that maybe in a minute. So that, that was argument number Number three, you can't be of advantage to your people if you don't delight in God and express it in ministry. I said we'd say more about that in just a minute, but I just noticed here I I stuck something in my notes. Um. If you ask, what if you're in a season, and by season I mean a day, a week, a month, what if you're in a season when the joy of the ministry has just gone away? What what should you do? Should you resign? Probably not. Not right away. That's what the devil probably is doing, is trying to ruin you. People used to come to me for years and years when I would talk about joy in God, and they would say, what if you don't have it? What if you don't have it? And so I wrote a book. (laughs) That's what I do when people ask me questions. I write books. (laughs) A book called When I Don't Desire God. Subtitle, How to Fight for joy. And I have 15 points right here in my notes about how to fight for joy, but that's another message. Um, But this is so urgent, maybe I should just tell you what the 10 of the points are. I'll just read them, all right? So you can at least know the kind of thing that I think you do when you're in a season where you don't have joy in the ministry. And John Piper said you have to or your people won't be loved. That's right. That's what I said because that's what Hebrews 13, 17 says. So just I'm just read 10 things. And if you want these unpacked, I I don't think it's translated. I don't know if it's translated, but there it is. And you can get it free at, at uh, DesiringGod.org. F- free English anyway. Number one, realize that authentic joy is a gift of God. You can't make it happen. Number two, realize that joy must be 
fought for relentlessly. Number three, resolve to attack every known sin in your life. You got a hidden sin, some sexual thing you're doing, that's, that's going to take your joy. It is. It's going to make you feel guilty. Guilt takes away joy. Number four, Learn the secret of how to fight for joy as a justified sinner. You're not fighting to be justified. You're already justified. By faith alone, through Jesus Christ, once and for all, justified. You're not fighting to be justified. You're fighting as a justified sinner. Number five, realize that the battle is primarily a battle to see God. Number six, Meditate on the Word of God day and night. Never stop. Never stop. Number seven, pray earnestly and continually for the opening of your eyes and the inclination to God. Eight, learn to preach to yourself, not just listen to yourself. I got that from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The psalmists preach to themselves. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disheartened within me? Hope in God. <laughs> He's talking to himself. Have you, do you know how to preach to yourself when you're down? We put that on the side of our church. John Piper is so constantly discouraged. <laughs> we put Psalm 42.5 on the building Hope in God, Pastor John. There's a future. God reigns. Lift up your heart. So you preach to yourself. And number, where am I? Um, number nine, spend time with God-saturated people. Find some, one or two. Cross to another town if you have to. Spend time with God-saturated people. And number 10, be patient in the night of God's absence. Be patient in the nighttime of God's absence. And I say that because that's what David said. I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry it. He put my feet upon a rock. He put a new song in my mouth. He, many will see and put their trust in the Lord. Well, how long did David wait? I waited. I waited. So that's where many of you are right now. A season of low or no joy, and you're waiting. I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. And maybe he'll hear you cry this morning. There are five more, and there's a whole book. Argument number four. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Now, let me remind you what, what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing that if you stop pursuing your full and everlasting joy in God, you can't love people. That's what I'm arguing for. Acts 20, 35, in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember 
That's a very important word. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed, satisfying, enriching, happy to give than to receive. I studied in Germany for three years, 1971 to 1974, working on a, an ethical dissertation about loving your enemies from the teachings of Jesus. So I was reading all kinds of ethical literature. Over and over again, I read those who had been influenced by Immanuel Kant say, it's okay to receive reward and blessing when you do good, when you give. It's okay. It is not okay to do good for the sake of the blessing, in order to get the blessing. That's wrong. And I have no authority. Good grief, Immanuel Kant, 10,000 times smarter than I am. All I have is a Bible verse. Look, you see the word remember? Help the weak remembering, remembering, not forgetting, remembering the words of Jesus. Which words are you supposed to remember when you're about to do a hard thing and you're not sure you want to do it? You're supposed to go minister and it's hard, it's dangerous, it's risky, I'm not sure I want to do it. What should you remember? Remember, it is more blessed to go than to receive. Now, all of those ethical teachers that I was reading that say you're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be motivated by the blessing, what they would have to say is, when you're struggling with motivation and you should go and you don't know if you want to go, be sure you forget what Jesus said. Forget it. By all means, forget what Jesus said, because if you remember this promise, it's going to contaminate your motivation. It's going to make your motivation evil. It's going to make you want the blessing. Well, of course, <laughs> Jesus wants you to want the blessing. You should love people for the blessing. That's what it says. Now, here's a key question. Why isn't that manipulative and selfish? Suppose I'm loving you, and uh, you ask me, why are you doing this? And I say, the blessing. I get a blessing. Is, is that bad? Would they feel loved? It, it is not bad, and they should feel loved 
if the blessing is, this is the way I would say it, my joy in God as I come to you, even if it's very costly for me, my joy in God is expanding now to include you in it. That's why I'm doing this. I want bigger joy. I want bigger joy. I want big, big joy. I'm not content with the joy I have. I want it to be bigger joy in God. And if I could be a means of including you in it, my joy gets bigger. That is not manipulation. That's inclusion. I think, pe- I think unbelievers can understand that. In fact, I think they would be amazed if you said that. If you, took, if you took them a meal or a cup of cold water or helped them out of a difficult situation, and they said, why are you doing that? You would say, God has satisfied my soul. God meets my needs. And my joy in God gets bigger every time I try to include other people in it. And I would love for you to share my joy in Him. They would never say you're selfish. They wouldn't. That's not selfish. That's not manipulative. That's love. That's what love is. So when Acts 20, 35 says it is more blessed, more blessed to give than to receive, that's a motivation you should remember. It says remember. When you're about to do a hard thing, remember, my joy is going to get bigger Because God is just the kind of God that gives more of Himself when you're including other people in it. You know that. You've all tasted it, right? You know you sleep so much better when you've put yourself out for somebody at cost to yourself. Not all of the joy, not all of the joy in giving comes in this life. Let me read you what Jesus said about the motivation for loving others in Luke 14, Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. Remember this story? When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your sisters, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. (laughs) This is not the way the world thinks. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And here comes the key sentence. Because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's why I said, not all the joy of the blessing of giving comes in this life. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
there will be a reward, more of Christ, for every good deed you ever did. Yes, there will be. And what a great blessedness we will have in that day. Um, maybe I'll close with argument number five. There's lots of them, but I'll just end with this one. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. Matthew 5, 11 to 16. This is really familiar, but I'm going to put a twist on it that you may or may not have thought of. Let's read it. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? Rejoice (laughs) and be glad. Just stop and put all the pieces together. Isn't this 2 Corinthians again? 2 Corinthians, grace came down, afflictions increased, and joy overflowed. That's what he's describing. Jesus is where all this comes from. Rejoice in the day of your slander when people are slandering you. Rejoice. You you want to know what Italy will wake up and notice? The Balkans, America, they don't give a hoot about whether Christians are rich or not. (laughs) If you think preaching prosperity turns people into Christians, it doesn't. It turns them into greedy people who use Christianity to get what they want. It's not Christianity. If you want Italy and the Balkans to see something stunning, This is what they must see. People who are slandered and rejoice. That is so supernatural, so beyond any human capacity. They will notice. They will not, you won't make any sense to them because the world simply doesn't do that. The world wants to be rich. You don't need to be born again to want to be rich. Good grief. But you have to be born again and filled with the Spirit to rejoice when somebody slanders you. Let's keep reading. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth evangelicals in Italy and the Balkans, you are the salt of this country. But if the salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of Italy, the light of the Balkan countries. You are the light, a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden, cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light 
to all who are in the house, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. Now, have you ever paused to ask about the connection between verses 12 and 13 and verses 14 to 16. Verse 14 says, you are the salt of the earth. You taste salty to the world. You are the light of the world. You look bright. Now, what is that? Well, it says, let let, um, let them see your good deeds that they may give glory to your Father. So, a part of it is good deeds, doing good for people. But lots of people do good for others, and people don't see the glory of God. Everybody does good deeds. World does good deeds, Muslims do good deeds, Hindus do good deeds, Jewish people do good deeds, secular people do good deeds. Doing good deeds is not going to make people glorify God. Well, what does Jesus mean then if he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Here's my, I'm just going to offer you this for you to think about. I think Jesus intends for His words, starting in verse 11 through 16, I think He means for them to be heard as all one piece. When you are slandered and persecuted, rejoice! Your reward is great in heaven. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Do your good deeds while you are being slandered with joy. And they will notice that will taste salty. It will taste bright. They've never seen anything like this. Italy has never seen anything like this. People that are so satisfied in God that when they are persecuted, slandered, they look to the reward, and they rejoice, and they go about doing good for the very people who have slandered them. That's what Italy needs. That's what the Balkans need. Christians who are so completely satisfied in God and His everlasting reward of His presence at His right hand, that when they are slandered, they return good for evil, start doing their good deeds, their light is shining brightly through the joy in persecution that the world cannot explain. That's the salt. That's the light. That's the love. And if you are indifferent to that joy, you are indifferent to loving people. Let me sum up these three days for us in two minutes. God created the world for His glory, the glory of His grace, the glory of the grace 
shining most brightly in Jesus. The glory of His grace in Jesus shining most brightly when He died for us and rose again. God is glorified most fully when we are most fully satisfied in Him. Therefore, pursue satisfaction in Him with all your might every day because that's the way He looks good in the world, especially when you're dying or suffering. And finally, if you stop pursuing God's satisfying presence, if you are indifferent to the joy that you have in relationship with Him, you won't be able to love people. First, because the most loving thing you can do is include them in the joy that you have in God forever. And second, because the costs of love are so enormous that the only thing that will sustain you in the affliction and in the poverty and in the persecution is joy in God. Therefore, my friends in Italy and the Balkans and beyond, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the glory of Christ, for the sake of the glory of the cross and the glory of the gospel, for the sake of the satisfaction of your own soul, for the sake of loving others, do not settle, do not settle for anything less than full and everlasting joy in God. Let's pray. Father, we're going to bow before your sacred table in a moment, the Lord's table, where death is the centerpiece. And I pray that as we gather there, your grace by your death through Jesus would be sweet to us. We would taste the cup in a new way, sweet. Taste the bread in a new way, sweet. And there would rise in our hearts a kind of resolve. We will do anything to make Christ look great in this world. Minister that to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.